online, on digital radio and television, and on the ABC Listen app. The Tasmanian Country Hour with Fiona Breen on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. They had 51,000 containers stranded around the country at their four container ports in in Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane and Fremantle. And um, the congestion that it's causing there is now having a whole lot of knock-on effects. A whole world of pain for freight movements right around the country. Hello, I'm Fiona Breen. Thanks for joining the Country Hour this beautiful Friday afternoon and Snakes Alive, a dream that definitely turned into a nightmare. The, the story was she uh, had been asleep in bed uh, and had been bitten by a snake uh, while she was lying in bed, uh, being bitten on the hand. Sends shivers down your spine, doesn't it? Do you have a creepy, crawly story? Let me know. I'd love to hear about it on this Friday afternoon. Let me know what you have to say, what your story is, what your close encounter is, maybe with a snake or a creepy crawly. 0438922936. Just the text line today, 0438922936. But first... Let's have a look at the glyphosate court case that's underway in Australia at the moment. Glyphosate is the most used herbicide in the world. And in Australia right now, it's at the forefront of a landmark trial. Lucy Cooper looks at the ins and outs of the court case. On Monday the 4th of September, a landmark trial begun in Australia. The case, a class action involving more than 800 Australians who've been diagnosed with non-Hodgkin lymphoma. They allege their cancer is linked to their exposure to Roundup, a broad-spectrum glyphosate-based herbicide between July 1976 and July 2022. So what's the aim of the trial? To determine if glyphosate, the key ingredient in Roundup, is carcinogenic to humans and causes non-Hodgkin lymphoma. If that is accepted by the court, the trial will then seek to determine whether the manufacturer, Monsanto, and its Australian division, Huntsman Chemical Company, were negligent for the risks posed by its products. If the applicants are successful, the trial could have significant regulatory implications in Australia. Morris Blackburn is running the class action. He is one of their lead lawyers, Andrew Watson, to explain the intention of the trial. Well, in 2015, the International Agency for the Research on Cancer um, declared that glyphosate, which is the active ingredient of the uh, Roundup product uh, that's sold by Monsanto, was a probable human carcinogen. Uh, Since that time, Monsanto's behaved uh, like... uh, many multinationals who hear uh, evidence uh, that they don't uh, like and that impacts on their profit and and it's engaged effectively in a campaign of trying to uh, uh, create confusion about the science and uh, a campaign with regulators and others. Uh, But uh, what that led to is us initiating this proceeding some years ago Uh, in order to obtain compensation for those people who had developed non-Hodgkin's 
lymphoma uh, as a result of their exposure to Roundup. Roundup, the glyphosate product in question, continues to be sold in Australia. You could purchase it today at your local hardware store if you wanted to. And Monsanto's parent company, Bayer, insists Roundup is safe. So why is glyphosate important? Why is it used and what on? According to the Australian Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority, glyphosate is a herbicide used to control weeds in agriculture, public and industrial areas and in home gardens. It's been registered for use in Australia for over 40 years and is the most widely used herbicide in the world. It's used on the majority of farms in Australia, from sugarcane to horticulture, grains and oil seeds. Andrew Wiedemann, a Victorian farmer and research and development spokesperson with Grain Producers Australia, says the broad-spectrum weed killer has transformed grain growing in Australia and around the world, providing weed control without the need to cultivate and eliminating the horrid dust storms of the early 1980s. When it comes to glyphosate, obviously that's probably the world's choice in terms of weed control. You cast your mind back in 82, but uh, I first came home on the farm uh, in that era and the dust storms that were around then, and you look at the way agriculture is today uh, and the way that's transformed and the way that, that we're growing, the amount of grain that we're growing, it's all on the back essentially of the use of glyphosate. Glyphosate is most commonly used in no-till or minimum tillage systems. Tillage controls weed growth by ploughing and cultivating, but because glyphosate is a broad-spectrum weed killer, it means farmers aren't required to till. Crops and pastures are simply planted into soil with the previous crop's residues. No-till farming benefits include less soil erosion, reduced fuel and labour costs and greater conservation of water. So if glyphosate was to be banned in Australia, what would that actually mean? For backyard gardeners, it means no more quick fix for weeds. But what about those with much bigger backyards, farmers? All the benefits from no-till farming will lose those because there is no alternative to glyphosate. I know that we've got, obviously, we've got other products on the market that we have used in the past and continue to use, but some of those are already banned. For example, paraquat has already been banned in most jurisdictions around the world, but we still have it. But none of those alternatives will replace glyphosate as it is. So it is going to be having a big impact on our farming system, especially on no-till farming. And we should be thinking about what can we do to replace glyphosate in case it happens. It's not a panic situation, but it's something that we should be thinking about, at least in the short to medium term. That's Victorian-based crop scientist and consultant Harm Van Rees in response to claims from peak agricultural bodies that they are alarmed by attacks on glyphosate because it's an important toolbox for farming. Lead lawyer running the class action at Morris Blackburn, Andrew Watson, said he won't apologise for putting health of humans first. Human health and the opportunity for people to work safely and to not be exposed to a cancer-inducing chemical uh, has to trump the expedience of a multinational's profit and the expedience of uh, the convenience that goes with the use of glyphosate. So, So, you know, we make no apology for the fact that we are prioritising 
the health of humans above those expedients. But not all farmers feel this way. Some producers say they're keen to move away from the synthetic pesticides. Tammy Jonas is a livestock producer and butcher and the president of the Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance. Coming from a food sovereignty and an agroecology perspective, we sort of reckon there needs to be a transition to a totally different way of farming. They do think there's a responsibility on all of us, but in particular governments, to show some leadership in how to transition farms to more biodiverse production methods using integrated pest management. You know, there are lots of tools in the organic farmers' toolbox as well, even though some of those may be imperfect. You have broadacre organic farmers not using glyphosate, so we know it can be done. And I would say that we need to be making that transition rather rapidly, given the biodiversity loss and climate change from the production of of, um, agrochemicals as well. The class action represents over 800 Australians who believe glyphosate causes them or their loved ones non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Many more people across the country believe this as well. Matt Irison, a grazier near Hay in New South Wales, is one such person. So we had two units going, you know, day after day for months, uh, into years, you know, tidying up country. And um, my cousin used to call my brother and I the, the chemical brothers because we were using it so often. So that was a bit of a joke around town. He still uses Roundup when required always trying to follow instructions. I did have uh, disposable overalls, um, gloves and a respirator at times. But then I I sort of found that if you had a breeze running away from you, try and spray with and let the the spray go the other way. And it was just, if you're out there in 40 degree heat, it it became a bit unbearable wearing a respirator. I know uh, Monsanto says that Roundup is safe, uh, but I've seen a few issues in our in our family and in the district that makes me wonder a little bit. My brother-in-law passed away in 2015 from non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is the one the court case they're presiding over at the moment. He sort of yeah, had bone marrow transplants and, and um, with his brother and unfortunately passed away after about 12 years with the disease. Mr Irison has developed an immune disorder and has begun to wonder if there is a link to his ongoing use of Roundup. It's called ITP, first words idiopathic, which means um, they don't know the cause of it. But I will say one thing, when I went to the doctor in Hay, he said, have you been working with organophosphates and organochlorides, which are chemicals, as you know, and uh, it sort of makes me wonder how I developed ITP, I've still got it now. So now we have a strong picture of the role of glyphosate and who uses it and potential impacts if it were to be banned. So let's take our minds back to the nine-week trial, which sought to determine if glyphosate, the key ingredient in Roundup, is carcinogenic to humans and therefore causes non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Class action lead lawyer Andrew Watson said he is confident they'll be able to persuade the judge and achieve a positive outcome for all 800 Aussies in the class action. Not everyone that's exposed to other carcinogens gets cancer. Not everyone who smokes a cigarette gets lung cancer. But that does not mean that there's not a proven association between smoking and lung cancer. And in the same way... Uh, the evidence we say will establish that Roundup and its active ingredient glyphosate do cause non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. 
And the landmark class action court case will return for final admissions in coming weeks. And it's unclear as yet uh, where a dis- when a decision will be made. If you'd like to have your say, I know quite a few of you use Roundup quite safely, uh, feel free to send us a text 0438 922 Your home is your castle. But what if it was something else first? It's a bunker. <laughs> it is a, a solid concrete bunker, that's for sure. These Aussie grand designers have ambitious plans. We're going all out. Do you have an architect? I don't. To transform a fixer-upper into the home of their dreams. This is amazing. What are we doing? Are we mad? Are we crazy? The brand new show, Grand Designs Transformations. <laughs> Thursday nights on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. It's the Country Hour with Fiona Breen on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. A shipping industry spokesman is making dire predictions about worsening impacts of major industrial dispute at the nation's key ports, stevedoring company DP World and its stevedores have been locked in a dispute over pay and conditions for months, causing critical shipping backlogs and delays in the export of produce. Paul Zale, Director of the Freight and Trade Alliance and Secretary for the Australian Peak Shippers Association, says the dispute is going from bad to worse. The dispute began in October last year um, uh, with the use of protected industrial action. So it began then and it was really um, taking the form of uh, stop work for periods of time, stop servicing perhaps road and rail for small windows, um, bans on overtime and the like. So initially the action wasn't too severe on the industry, but you know it's almost been like a death of a thousand cuts. It's just been so prolonged that the pain of the protected industrial action has just been building up over the weeks and months that's transpired. And we've got to the point now where I think last Thursday when I spoke to DP World, they had 51,000 containers stranded around the country at their four container ports in in Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane and Fremantle. And um, the congestion that it's causing there is now having a whole lot of knock-on effects. We've got international uh, shipping vessels now that are making commercial decisions to bypass particular ports that are congested at any given time. And then the impacts then for importers are devastating. They don't get their their stock when they expect it. That's the import side of things. The exports um, have got a lot harder again. And just on that, we've got uh, all sorts of ag goods that are exported out of Australia, lots of perishables, the likes of table grapes to come out of Victoria's Sunraysia. What's happening with those products? Yeah, look, you, you raise a really good point. We're getting we're getting hammered by our members in the ag sector um, across the board. Um, so, in, and it's you know this just does not discriminate. It affects any movement of cargo in in con- sea freight containers. Um, so, you know, we've heard from um, fish meal exporters out of Tasmania being impacted. You know, they've got the situation now where. Um, they're relying on the Port of Melbourne to reach uh, international markets. As you said, the grape growers are really getting hit hard. This is going, you know, it's a peak time for them. Uh, they've got an opportunity to get to market. They're, they're facing the issues there at the port. Um, 
and it goes on. Riverina, we've, we're talking to wine exporters. You know, they've got lucrative markets to the US and other parts of the world where they can't can't reach market. Out of um, central New South Wales, you know, you've got your, your meat exporters up to Toowoomba, you've got your pulses, you've got your cotton shippers. Everyone is facing the issue. And our good friends in the West, we're talking to grain exporters out of there as well. The problem is severe and it's affecting all sectors of commerce. Paul, from my reading, it seems that there doesn't there doesn't appear to be any end in sight for this dis- dispute. Look, it's getting going from bad to worse, to be honest. So we had this week uh, was meant to be the great hope that we're going to have three days of um, negotiations, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and today, Thursday, um, to try and get a resolution. But the week started pretty badly with um, both DP World and the union making a whole lot of um, I don't know, volatile statements, I would call it, in in the media, Um, and DP World threatening that um, if they don't get a resolution now, that come tomorrow, Friday, that any worker that takes any form of protected industrial action will be docked a day's pay that they take that action. So that's starting to bring things to a head. I've read in other media overnight, and, and, and I assume it's true, um, that the the Maritime Union, their response has been to to counter that with threats of um, not servicing any vessel for, for up to 16 hours from the time that it births, and then also not servicing particular targeted shipping lines altogether. So really, if that's if that's true, then you know what will the response be from DP World? I think they may take a drastic action similar to what we saw in the late 1990s where they might do a lockout um, and um, and force the Fair Work Commission or the federal government to come in at the 11th hour to do some independent arbitration before before they actually lock out the workers altogether. And we haven't had a lockout like that since the 90s? We haven't. It was interesting. Um uh, Spitzer, the tugboat operator, you may recall last year, they they had prolonged uh, protected industrial action, um, and they they did threaten the lockout, and which was a big call, but then it paid off for them because again at the eleventh hour, the Fair Work Commission stepped in, arbitration uh, was put in place, and there was a resolution. Now, interestingly. The CEO of Spitzer at the time um, was a gentleman by the name of Nikolai Knowles, and Nikolai is now the current um, uh, Australian Vice President of uh, DP World. He moved across from Spitzer. So it wouldn't surprise me, and we we actually did an interview with Nikolai back on the 5th of uh, December, and I actually put the question to Nikolai, if if need be, would would he resort to a lockout strategy again? And he did not dismiss that as an option. So with the escalation of threats and escalation of protected industrial action, it may be where we're heading. So, And that was Paul Zellay, Director of the Freight and Trade Alliance and Secretary for the Australian Peak Shippers Association. He was speaking to Angus Verley and Executive Vice President of DP World Oceana Nikolai has told ABC Radio it wants the federal government to step in and mediate the dispute. The indications are that the actions taken are going to escalate going forward. So um, when we cannot agree and we have this industrial action, there is a broader picture. And and I think we are asking the government to go in and and say, look, look, we're looking at this from the side of Australia and, and we are not just urging you to 
to solve it, when you have proven not to be able to solve it, we will go in and play an active part in mediating this. That doesn't appear likely at this stage. A spokesman for Federal Industrial Relations Minister Tony Burke said the government urges all parties to engage with the Fair Work Commission and find a solution. And in a statement, Maritime Union Assistant National Secretary Adrian Evans says this is incredibly profitable, multinational stevedoring outfit. Uh, The company already pays its workers 17% less than Patrick's next door and they have just jacked up prices for their import and export customers by 52% at the beginning of this month. The MUA has been seeking, they say, uh, meaningful good faith bargaining with DP World Management since March 2023, but for nine months they've faced nothing but obstruction, according to the Maritime Union, and delay from management who have according to the Maritime Union, sabotaged the negotiation process at every opportunity. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour. You're with Fiona Breen on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Now, it's the stuff of nightmares, a deadly snake crawling into your house, into your bed, and biting you in your sleep. And it was reality for a young woman on a rural property about 400 kilometres west of Brisbane who was bitten on the hand in her sleep overnight. Her family has been praised for its quick action in applying first aid and a rescue helicopter transported the woman to Toowoomba Hospital where she remains in a serious but stable condition. Life Flight's medical officer, Dr. Alan McKillop, explained the situation to David Chen. The the story was she uh, had been asleep in bed uh, and had been bitten by a snake uh, while she was lying in bed, uh, being bitten on the hand. Uh, She'd uh, provided, the family had provided a very good first aid with a uh, uh, snake bandage. Uh, and they had contacted the Queensland Ambulance Service, which had responded um, uh, from the nearest town, still some distance away. We were activated and we uh, arrived on scene. Um, She had been very well managed uh, by uh, the family with their first aid and also, by obviously, by the QAS. At that stage, she wasn't experiencing any symptoms of envenomation, but she had been bitten. Uh, and the snake had been identified as a eastern brown snake, uh, which had entered the house, entered the bedroom, and had bitten her on the hand while she was asleep. Uh, so uh, we transported her with uh, appropriate uh, medical interventions uh, en route to the Toowoomba Hospital for further assessment uh, so she could be monitored to see if she had developed any symptoms of snake uh, envenomation. How would you describe that scenario, being bit on by a snake while you're sleeping? Uh, the actual circumstances are very rare. Uh, unfortunately, brown snake uh, bites are the most common uh, envenomating bite uh, in Australia and each year there are many deaths in Australia from envenomation from brown snake um, but it is in my experience it's very uncommon to be bitten while you're asleep thank goodness um, often uh, these snakes uh, will bite uh, when they're uh, being threatened uh, 
when they're being chased or attempted to be handled. So obviously the advice is to keep well away from these snakes if you do see them. Um, in this circumstance, a snake entered the house and entered the bedroom. So uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, the patient uh, uh, was bitten um, with no fault of her own, of course. Um, the um, It does emphasise the importance of uh, people being aware of the first aid uh, in response to uh, any snake bite uh, and the family did provide uh, good first aid uh, which means they uh, kept the patient very still, they kept the limbs still and they used a, a snake bandage to firmly encircle the limb uh, to prevent movement of the venom towards the centre of the body. Uh, they also called for the ambulance quickly uh, and sought help uh, and kept her calm and reassured until the ambulance arrived. So they did everything they were supposed to do. And Alan, just to describe the process of uh, your flight, life flight crews preparing the patient for, for any possible antivenine. Yes, well, we do carry antivenom on our rescue helicopters, uh, particularly for this sort of uh, experience when the snake bite is outside a, a health facility. Um, it's carried on the helicopter. It is used only if the patient is experiencing symptoms, but we have it available the whole time. So if during the transport uh, back to uh, the major hospital, the patient does start to experience symptoms, we can start the antivenom immediately. And you can find a photo of the snake, believed to be an eastern brown, peeking out of her doona at abc.net.au forward slash news. Uh, and there have been several deaths each year, as Dr. Alan McKillop just mentioned. Time for the news headlines now with Liz Gwynn. Good afternoon. Fee people in Shepparton in Victoria's north are being warned against swimming in local waterways despite the arrival of warm weather. The nearby Goulburn River is expected to peak at a minor level of 10.4 metres tomorrow, possibly bringing flooding to some streets but not homes when it does. Emergency Services Minister Jacqueline Symes has encouraged people to visit flood-affected towns when the clean-up is complete. Disaster Relief Australia says its official deployment to southeast Queensland on New Year's Day should take the pressure off the Australian Defence Force. The group is made up of veterans and has been given federal funding to expand its capacity. And a boy has sadly died after being found in a backyard pool in the New South Wales Hunter region. Police were called to the home yesterday afternoon to help locate a six-year-old who was reported missing. Officers found the boy unresponsive in the pool of a nearby property. He was unable to be revived. There's more news at one o'clock. Thank you, Liz. Coming up, we open up an old debate about border collies versus kelpies ahead of the musters, muster dog's return. You're probably either a forward person or a holding person, and that's pretty much the same with the dogs. But first, time to check the weather forecast. Uh, good afternoon, Luke Johnston at the Bureau of Meteorology. Hey, Fiona, how are you doing? Very good, thank you. Now, has there been much rainfall about it all? Not really. There was a little bit of low cloud and drizzly stuff around the southeast this morning. It resulted in one millimetre at Stern Tree, but I don't think anyone's going to be too upset with that. <laughs> Elsewhere, it's been pretty dry, both in the 24 hours to 9am and, uh, and since 9am. Looking at beautiful, hot, 
weather today. Uh, a little bit warmer in most parts than what we got to yesterday. It's already been up to 28 degrees at, at Ooze in the Upper Dillant Valley and we reached, uh, we've reached 27 at Campania and Bushy Park so far. Hobart's been up to 26. So looking like a nice dry day for the most part for the remainder of today. A little bit on the humid side though and eventually later tonight we might see some light showers about the west but uh, again just, just another beautiful day for Tassie really. Fantastic and what about the rest of the, the weekend? All right, well, tomorrow morning a cold front will come across the state uh, in the early hours of, of Saturday. It's not expected to bring too much in the way of rainfall. We're lucky to get more than a millimetre or two in, in most parts. Um, that should clear away to the northeast during tomorrow morning pretty quickly. So looking at a fine weekend for most areas, both Saturday and Sunday, caveat being there could be some afternoon showers or storms about the northern Midlands and parts of adjacent areas of the northeast and northwest, both Saturday afternoon and Sunday morning. Shouldn't result to too much. If anything, you'd be lucky to get a couple of millimetres. Uh, if we do get some reasonable showers or thunderstorms developing about the northern Midlands on Saturday evening, you might get an isolated spot or two of 10 to 20 millimetres between Cressy and Canara, but you'd have to be pretty lucky to get right on that, I think. Uh, any warnings at all? Yeah, warnings-wise, today a strong wind warning just for the southeast coast. A little bit windier tomorrow with that front moving through, so a strong wind warning for southern coastal waters between Tasman Island and Low Rocky Point, including Storm Bay and Frederick Henry Norfolk Bays, as well as the uh, far northwest coast. Speaking of coastal waters, uh, variable today, 10 to 20 knots, generally northeast to northwesterly, tending west to northwesterly, 15 to 25 knots, about the west and south during this afternoon, reaching 30 knots in the southeast uh, later this evening. Tomorrow, stronger, as I said before, southwesterly 15 to 25 knots, tending southerly up the east coast, and then southeast to northeasterly through east and Bass Strait in the afternoon, reaching 30 knots at times in the southeast and northwest. The west and south has got a west to southwesterly swell around 2 to 3 metres today and tomorrow through Bass Strait, through a remaining or lingering westerly below 1 metre. The east coast has got a southerly below 1 metre today and tomorrow, also developing a northeasterly below 1 metre during the course of Saturday. Significant wave height right now off Cape Sorrow on the west coast 2.9 metres. Luke Johnson thank you. Thanks Fiona Ollie, can you say Jack Jumpers? <laughs> Hello, it's Lucy Braden. I'm still on the beach right now enjoying the holidays. Next week, I'm back on your radio and I have the hottest tickets in town to give away. Two tickets to a Jack Jumpers home game. Now we're talking Hobart. Tune in to drive all next week, listen out to the keyword, then enter the draw via the ABC Listen app. I'll tell you more next week. See you then. Drive with Lucy Braden. On ABC Radio Hobart. Keeping you updated every day. The Tasmanian Country Hour with Fiona Breen. Now, if you dream of owning 1,300 dairy cows one day and are relatively new to farming, you can be rest assured it's achievable. Network and do some research and you'll find there are loan schemes and business partners out there to help you on your way. James and Sophie Greenacre did just that. They moved to Tasmania four years ago with little in the bank and are steadily building their capital through share farming. Claire Burberry caught up with James to talk about their journey from Bega to Cressy and taking all the opportunities that came their way. We're halfway through our second round of joining at the moment. Um, and we're basically irrigating flood out, obviously finished calving and just looking at the season ahead. 
What do you mean that you're in your second round of joining? Yeah, we synchronise all of our cows so that um, they all, as many as possible, come on in a short period of time. So we've done our second round of AI and then bulls are out at the moment just uh, mopping up the cows. Is it important for you to have your joinings and AI as close together as possible? Yeah, so for us, um, we will carve between August and the middle of October. And the difference in production between a cow that will calve at the start of August between a cow that will calve in the middle of October will be anywhere between $1,000 and $1,500. So obviously for us, it's important to get the cows calving as soon as we can. So I'm from a place called Berry, which is on the south coast of New South Wales to our south of Sydney. And my wife Sophie is from Bega, which is six hours south of Sydney. Uh, and we moved to Tasmania uh, six years ago. And why did you move here? We came down on our honeymoon. We came down and we were doing a road trip around Tasmania for four weeks. I was fortunate enough to go to uh, three or four dairies while we were down here. Um, and we met uh, uh, Rob and Joe, who are our current business uh, partners, while we were down here. You were already working in the dairy industry before you came here on your honeymoon? Yeah, I um, was working for uh, someone who was very, very good to me in terms of what they were able to teach me in a short space of time and um, it was a 400-cow year-round farm. When you got the job here with Joe and Rob, you then had an opportunity to move into the business. Can you talk us through how that happened? I love uh, cows and grass and so the dairy industry was a natural fit for me. Uh, The other thing about the dairy industry is for those that... Um, don't have a family farm or a farm to work on and aspire to get to that point uh, is that because of the intense nature of the industry there's a real need for um, managers to be you know to be well remunerated or to to share the reward of the the hard work that they put in not to say that they do any harder than any of the other industries but uh, so it's just a culture of of what's what's happened in the industry in Australia and around the world and so for us we were keen to get into business ownership uh, and uh, that was you know part of the thinking about coming down here is that there was opportunity to do that we thought so we're currently in an equity partnership uh, with Rob and Joe and it's worked really well we've been in business for four years and it's been yeah fantastic and they've been really supportive of us. Can you talk through the financial backing from the government for this equity partnership? Yeah sure so uh, we didn't have much to start with and we were very fortunate that Sophie my wife came across the um, state growth agri-lending scheme so with that loan and also with the help of the Bradleys we were able to get into um, owning 40% of the business which has the cows and the machinery and then we're also able to um, buy some land in partnership with Rob and Joe and we've subsequently bought a block on our own and I guess without that state growth money or the support of Rob and Joe we wouldn't have been able to do that. James, you were 28 when you started your dairy career. Do you think having fresh eyes has helped you in this profession? Probably helped and hindered. (laughs) Um, I'm pretty useless around the farm at times, Um, but it's probably helped in the sense that during that focus farm program, you know, one year we we were feeding kind of 1.4 tonnes of grain and the next year we fed 500 kilos and I guess I was more than happy to try something different and, yeah, I don't have any preconceived ideas um, 
about how I should how things should be done. I have found it interesting that like having been here now for uh, six years, you can start to see yourself getting caught into like habits, uh, and so probably need to work on breaking some bad habits. Can you give us an example of a bad habit? Oh, I could give you lots of examples. <laughs> um, I guess just the way that you view you know you view your farm system. We've settled on a farm system that I think is is really good and um, profitable and sustainable and good on our staff. But I do wonder, you know, I spent a lot of time in those first few years thinking about different systems and, um, you know, and for example, I guess looking at, you know, this virtual fencing um, collars like um, Halter, you know, I'd be very keen to do it. But I guess we've got a really set system on how we allocate pasture to the cows and how we make sure that their cows are getting the right amount of grass and, um, you know, certain ways that milking gets done and how cows are brought to the shed. And you look at, you know, this new hardware and you think, geez, that would completely transform what we're doing. And um, whilst that's really exciting, it's also, uh, you know, very expensive and slightly scary in the in the sense of how that could change the way that you, um, that you farm. Do you think in the future that AI and other technologies might reduce the need for staff? I think that there's no question that, uh, you know, in five years' time, the dairy industry will be, every industry will be completely different. I can see that all of our cows will have collars. I think that one fundamental challenge in the industry is that the cows still need to be milked uh, twice a day or, you know, you know, however many times a day. And so that's the, that's a challenge that I think that the, uh, you know, dairy manufacturers need to overcome. And that's James Greenacre from Rosemount Dairies near Cressy chatting there to Claire Burberry. Now, have you ever been scrolling Tinder or another dating app and imagined a completely different life with the person on the other end? Well, in this modern day love story, that's exactly what happened to Ella and Daniel Kelleher. They met on Tinder and one year later, Ella moved down to the Tasman Peninsula in Tasmania's southeast to start a cattle and viticulture business together. Eliza Klosser caught up with both of them at their farm at Premadina Hill. I think we probably chatted for about a week on Tinder. We had our first date at Bangor. So that's straight across the bay there. You can actually see the farm and and the little cellar door. So that's a real special place for us. I don't know, I think you moved in about 12 months later. Yeah, basically we, we met in the December of 2015 and went back and forth between, I mean, I was spending weekends down here at the farm and Daniel was coming up midweek to visit up in town and it just wasn't wasn't really working for us we were we were pretty invested in the relationship and I was really excited about what Daniel was doing down here and wanted to be more involved and um so we just yeah took the plunge basically a year from the day we met we eloped here on the farm and then moved in together oh wow yeah a year a year isn't um that long I guess um I was quite taken aback when he proposed after we'd been together for I think eight months um, and then once we decided that we were getting married, we were like, oh, well, you know, don't muck around. Let's just get it done. <laughs> I think if you know you want something, you yeah. go for it. Like, what's the point of waiting? I was happy. I was confident. Yeah. Fell in love. Well, let's go for it. We weren't getting any younger. <laughs> <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> but it's actually cool. We've built... Where we got married is on top of the hill up there near the survey marker. Um, and we, we eloped, like Alice said... We literally just went up there. We had a couple of um, what do you call witnesses. 
um, a local celebrant, and now we've actually built our new house. So we've just constructed that in the last 12 months on top of everything else we've done with the cellar door. And our bedroom is actually at the point where we got married. Oh, wow. So it's actually a cool little spot, and it's really important to both of us. So, so you already had the farm, Daniel. You had, like, bought this farm before yep. you met? Yeah, I brought this farm about six months before we met. So I was just really settling into the farming lifestyle, stocking it with, with cattle and just learning the basics like fencing and fertiliser regimes and just the usual, just, just getting, learning to be a farmer. And what was, so what was your job before that? Um, I was in management with oil and gas mining companies, so completely different to farming. Um, I guess you take the same principles across. You, you look at what the best people do and then you replicate it. Um, but yeah, ultimately it was a massive career change for me. I'd been flying, fly out working for near on 15 years. Um, and then, yeah, just look for farms all around Australia. And Premadina just kept coming up. This farm just kept coming up um, as one of the best sort of investments. Reliable rainfall, um, beautiful topography, just really good place to grow cattle and at the time I was thinking you know maybe we'll get maybe I'll get into viticulture maybe I'll get into olives maybe I'll get into avocados so we wanted to do so many things I had to rein him in pretty hard (laughs) when we first met he was talking about truffles and all sorts and I was like well now let's learn how to do the cattle farm first (laughs) and take it from there but I had to um I had to let him go with the viticulture side of things because I don't mind a bit of wine so that seemed like a good direction to take things in and so you've gone into business together mm-hmm. after a year of meeting and then getting married. How, how's it going being in business um, together? Uh, pretty good most of the time. No, we, we're actually, um, I think we work quite well together. We're very different in our personalities. Um, so sometimes we drive each other crazy, but we actually need each other. Um, you know, Daniel has a lot of vision and... Um, confidence to to take the next step and he's got a lot of drive to to keep things moving forward Um, and I'm very detail orientated and a little bit risk averse so I'm there sometimes to put the brakes on when they need to be and sometimes to to sort of yeah point out some of the finer details when we need to take the time to do that Um, but I don't think either of us could do what we're doing without the other person. Tell me about this cottage like what are we what are we sitting so, well, we're sitting in our new cellar door, which is yet yet to be open, but will be open next week. Um, so we're very excited about launching that to the public. But, I mean, exactly where we're sitting is what used to be our lounge room. Um, we used to live in this cottage when Daniel and I first met. Uh, we raised our two young boys in here, and this was our family home for seven years. Um, so I've got a lot of memories in here. Um, it wasn't looking renovated like this when we lived here. It was full of leaks and drafts and orange and green carpet. And we've, um, yeah, we've done a bit of a restoration job on it now. It's nice to see it sort of, um, yeah, coming back to life. And that was Ella and Daniel Kelleher who met on Tinder, fell in love, set up a cattle and viticulture business down on the Tasman Peninsula, and they were talking to Eliza Closer. 
Breakfast is better. Actually, spooky. With Rick Goddard. That bell just appeared on my Twitter feed as we were speaking about it. Mm. So Elon Musk is probably listening speaking to us. Speaking of aliens. Yeah, it's got binacles on it, so it's been in the water for a little barnacles. while. Barnacles. Maybe they're bionic barnacles. <laughs> Mel Bush. I was going to say, please let it be an alien bell. Because if I had an interplanetary spaceship, the first thing I would put on it, the is front it of it, bell. is a giant <laughs> copper bell. Well, no one will get to dinner on time otherwise. Rick got it. Exactly up. my thinking, Mel Bush. Monday to Thursday from 5.30am on ABC Radio Hobart. You're with Fiona Brain on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Now, this Sunday night, the ABC's Muster Dogs returns to your screens. The big change this year is that five dog trainers have been gifted a Border Collie pup from Dubbo New South Wales breeder and trainer Mick Hudson. Last year, the Kelpies came from Joe Spicer down in Hamilton, Victoria. So let's open this argument. Kelpies... Or collies. In the New South Wales, New England region, Peter Hogan breeds Kelpies and trials them, but he's also trained hundreds of working dogs of various breeds for other people. He spoke to Amelia Bernasconi about the choice of switching from Kelpies to collies for Mustard Dogs Season 2. Well, I think it's only fair. You know, we've got to have a bit of a portrayal from both sides of the fence, and uh, I think it's good. I know that you've got pups coming from a I'm a very credible and reputable breeder in in Mick, and I think it's great to see the differences that you'll see in the next 12 months. Uh, My personal thoughts are they may not mature as quickly as the Kelpies. Just a little bit I've had to do with both breeds of dogs. But, gee, there's never been a good dog of that colour, and I think they'll be fine. They'll be really good, and I think it's only great that people get to look at both breeds and and, you know, we, you're probably either a Ford person or a Holden person, and that's pretty much the same with the dogs. And um, I think it's going to be good. I look forward to watching it. <laughs> well, what do you reckon then? You know, you've always been a, a Kelpie man. Uh, I'm not sure about Mick, but he's certainly a Collie man at the moment. But are you seeing more people crossbreeding, or what's the, what's the feeling? Should you be a traditional Ford or Holden, Kelpie or Collie? Yeah, I think so. I, I don't see much much value in crossbreeding there um, because you can't breed on with them anyway. Um, so, and look, I know a lot of farm dogs are crossbred dogs and a lot of them are successful as a farm working dog. But um, I think anybody who's genuinely trying to breed is probably trying to keep his lines pretty straight. They're either Kelpies or they're Collies. And uh, that's probably the way to go. You know, I think most farmers don't really care what he is as long as he works. And as long as he gets a tin of biscuits every day and a pat on the head, the dog doesn't care. He's quite happy. He's only got a place to follow that feeds him. So take me through the Kelpies. What do you like about Kelpies that's drawn you to building up your genetics there over so many years? Well, I very first wanted to find, I had farm bred dogs and they did a job for me. And I was looking to buy some better class of dogs. And I actually scoured the land newspaper working dog column. There was an ad in there for collie dogs that had been imported from Scotland for 40 years and blah, 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 blah. And I thought, gee, they read well. I might have one of them. So I rang old mate up and I went, drove to collector and bought this collie pup, bought it home and I read it for six months and I couldn't get it to be interested in sheep at all. It wouldn't look, it wouldn't start. And anyway, I rang him back up and I said, mate, and I said, I'm having trouble with this pup. And he said, well, bring him back and we'll try another one. So I brought him back and he, he um, gave me another collie pup to try. And now my Experience tell me they're just a bit later starting, a lot of them. And the next one wouldn't start either. Tommy was six months old. So I quit. I quit him too. And 
then I bought a black and tan Kelby pup from a recognised fellow, and away it went to work. And I thought, well, these are the ones I, I need. These are the ones I want, and that's that's the road I went down. Wow. And so in all those years since, yeah, what have you prioritised when you're breeding your pups? Look, I, I need a certain amount of class and the eye in their pups. I'm not trying to breed yard dogs. I'm trying to breed dogs that genuinely can do a bit of both. I know they're not going to be perfect either, but I like to compete in the yard trials. I still like dogs that will back and bark, which our fellas do. I probably class them more as an outside dog that will come in. And it means paddock dogs or similar that will come in and do a yard dog job. So I like dogs that have got class. Um, got some nice feel on their stock and you still are happy to be in the yards and to, to back quite freely. Mm. And I guess that's what I've been looking for for oh, 30 years, I guess. Um, I haven't got it right yet, but I'm still trying. <laughs> um, but, you know, everybody wants something a little bit different and that's a really good thing. Or we'd all have dogs that were the same. And that's not a good thing. You do a lot of trialling, Peter, and I understand your wife, Margot, joins you a lot, but she's gone down the collie path. Are there particular breeds that you can pinpoint that seem to do better at the the various sheep trials or the the cattle dog, the yard trials, or is it just a good dog on the day? Well, look, I think probably the collies are more suited to your three sheep trials, your field trials. They get on well with their sheep. They don't frighten sheep. So sheep will, are happy to be in a close proximity without being upset. Um, they're very biddable. They're really trainable. And they're happy to take a lot of screwing down and a lot of direction. And your Kelpie's not quite so much that way. He's a bit more independent. He likes to be left alone and say, no, I've got this beat, get out of the way. That's how they sort of approach the show. And they're probably more suited to yard trials. Um, and they're also quite successful in the cattle trial world, although there probably is more collies, cattle dog trolling. And that was Peter Hogan from Peterson's Kilpies in New South Wales speaking with Amelia Bernasconi. It's time now for the Livestock Report with Richard Bailey, Kilpies or Collies, Richard? Well, I had both. <laughs> there Kelby, you go. Kelby's, Kelby's for the yard and, and Collie's for the paddock. <laughs> sounds sensible, sounds good. Now tell me, we've got a bit, a bit to talk about in the markets. Yeah, just let's cut off firstly. Uh, the rains through, obviously through this state, were uh, been very welcome for crops, but the rains through Victoria, New South Wales and Queensland have had a massive impact in varying ways. Obviously, it helps the market, but it also has meant that there's been a lot of stock haven't been able to get to the market or, or to the abattoir. So just bearing that in mind when we look at some of the improved prices as we go through, generally speaking, prime cattle prices during the week interstate were 20 to 30 cents better, a lot of a lot of trade cattle, two twenty to two hundred and thirty cents a kilo, uh, to three hundred and thirty cents a kilo. Um, grown steers and bullocks, dearer also. Cows are the uh, probably the bigger improver. Um, sort of up on the border of Bunawatho, they averaged two hundred and forty cents a kilo and got as high as two hundred and sixty odd cents. And further south at Pakenham, two twenty to two thirty cents a kilo. So that's good news on the cow front. Um, the other highlight of the cattle job during the week, obviously, is the Wednesday. Wiener calf sales in Victoria, Western Victoria. I think they probably had about 15,000 uh, wieners through those yards, through Caston and, and Hamilton. Um, 
I think that, generally speaking, everyone would have been reasonably happy without being overjoyed. Uh, most of the steers worked out between 310 and 350 cents a kilo, and heifers 250 to 300 cents. I think probably some were hoping there was going to be a bit more competition from up north, but the freight situation is not so good at the moment. Um, and the other thing on cattle, finally, is uh, next Thursday, store cattle sale at Piranha. There'll be some good calves there, and there'll be some wieners in amongst all those. Okay. Uh, what about uh, sheep and lamb and mutton? Uh, lamb market has just uh, gone from strength to strength since Christmas. We talked about it last week, and it was in even much better again this week in places. Twenty to thirty dollars a head dearer, and it's when we're getting back to a few decent numbers as well. Uh, there were fifty-five thousand lambs at Wagga yesterday, which is twenty thousand more than last week. Um, they quoted most of their lambs anywhere from seven hundred and seventy to eight hundred and twenty cents a kilo. You've got to remember that you only go back a couple of months, and we were sort of around five hundred cents. So it's a it's a nice nice improvement, um, and generally speaking, you know things are looking pretty good in that line. I went down to Oatlands yesterday, good line-up of store lambs down there. Not the weight that we sometimes see, but the best lambs made $112 to $126. Medium weight, 75 to 122 Smaller, 36 to 80 and very small, 30 to 56 There were about 30% bought to go out to Victoria um, so uh, competition was local and and uh, Victorian which was good and then the other uh, thing of the week was mutton and mutton everywhere was dearer and in some cases up to 40, 30 and 40 dollars dearer Hamilton today 310 to 330 cents Wagga yesterday 320 to 350 cents a kilo remembering that early in December there were plenty of sheep at 80 to 90 cents a kilo. Wow, okay. So, yeah, interesting, <laughs> big, isn't it? Yeah, oh, big improvement in the lamb job. I mean, people yesterday just saying you wouldn't have believed it, would you? You know, that, that uh, you know, there, there were lambs, a lot of those lambs yesterday that sort of made 70 80 $90, we were struggling to get $30 for them at yes. the beginning of December. Yes, yeah. I spoke to a couple of farmers that had experienced that and they weren't weren't too happy, so it's good that things are improving. Was it still pretty dry in Oatlands area? No, 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 it's good down through there. Um, and, and, of course, these late rains, although they don't do much for pastures, they certainly help the, the fodder crops. There were some uh, rape crops and uh, turnip crops. I saw some rape crops up the highway that looked very, very good. And some lucerne that looks magnificent um, just there near Tunbridge. Oh, beautiful crops. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, Richard Bailey, thanks very much, and we'll catch you again next week. Good on you, Fiona. And that was Richard Bailey with the Livestock Report. Now, if you get a chance, make sure you hop on to our ABC Rural webpage. You'll see a story there about Australian lamb prices uh, expected to rise in the supermarkets and the, and the butchers soon following that spike in sale yard sheep prices that Richard Bailey was talking about. So maybe stock up. Make sure you buy Tassie lamb. That helps Tasmanian producers. There's also a few stories about the rains and the effect that's happening on stone fruit, particularly 
interstate, plums, peaches and nectarines in doubt as storms um, ravage stone fruit orchards. Probably good news in a way for Tasmanian producers who are still going pretty well. And don't forget Mustard Dogs is on ABC TV on Sunday night. And of course we have our own uh, farmer Russell Fowler from the Bothell region is appearing on Mustard Dogs. Don't know if he's on this Sunday night, but he's definitely in the program, so keep an eye out and make sure you join me again on Monday at 12 o'clock for the Country Hour. The Australian Open Tennis. On your radio this weekend across ABC Sport. All the exciting action, all tournament long, on the ABC Listen app. Just look for the tennis button.